Hello, everybody, and welcome to Art Drama Llama, uh, where we look beyond the galleries and dish on the art world's gossip, rivalries, and eccentricities. My name's Sianja. My name is Manchi. And I'm Vartika. And today we're going to look beyond. Ai Weiwei, giving the middle finger to your motherland. Okay, real quick. Way in Spanish is like a curse word. Oh, really? What, yeah. What, 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 like, what, what is the English equivalent? Okay, so whenever you say, because obviously he's doing something mischievous, right? So when you're mm-hmm. saying, so when you're saying his name, Ai Weiwei, to me, I'm more like, oh, you're saying person, I, person. yeah, I, like, I like, like I'm this dude, this dude. <laughs> no, you don't need to send it. Okay. Uh, Guay uh, is Mexican slang for dumbass or idiot. Or thought it can also be used as a slang term for man or dude. Oh, interesting. Okay. Okay. All right. Yes. So it's I do dude. You know, I'm oh, man, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yes, Vartika. Uh, okay. All right. Well, okay. I wanted to talk about Ai Weiwei because I think he's a very fascinating artist. And there's some drama between him and the Chinese government, which I think is pretty interesting. Um, is in is he like, okay, though? He's okay now. Yeah, he's fine. He's now? Fine. Well, you know, there's been stuff that happened. And it's, I think it's I think it's interesting to talk about because I think we forget like the degree in which a non-democratic country can wield its power. Like I think even in a democratic country we see institutions wield their power unjustly, but I think we forget the degree of which that can happen in a more in a less democratic country and one where mm-hmm. there are fewer checks and balances in place. So so I think it's I think uh, the tango between him and the Chinese government is an interesting one and kind of one that I think for a lot of people will make them realize like how unjust sometimes governments can be. So, um, but yeah, but I always thought he was super fascinating. I thought some of his work was really interesting. And then as I dug more into him as an artist, I think he is kind of the modern equivalent of what an artist is or he is a modern version of an artist um, because I think with anything, there's an evolution. And I think he definitely has shown like how art has evolved over time. So I guess without further ado, just for people who don't know him, um, Ai Weiwei is like, is a very famous prof- prominent Chinese artist. Um, and I think some of the works people might actually know um, with regards to him uh, are his sunflower seeds. It was first exhibited in the Tate Modern, and he made all of these like hundreds and thousands of sunflower seeds out of Chinese porcelain, um, and just like sprayed them all across the floor of the Tate Modern in a specific room. Um, and the idea behind the piece was that, like with the Communist Party, they promoted every citizen as like sunflower seeds because sunflowers always like rotate with the sun, right? They always face the sun, and the sun is supposed to be Mao Zedong or whoever is in charge of the Communist Party at the time. So that's, so like the sunflower seeds are supposed to represent the Chinese people. Um, and just like, you know, you have them, so it's like the sea of Chinese people. And then, you know, and then also um, this is where I feel like he, how he has evolved art kind of comes in because he is an artist who doesn't actually do a lot of the art himself. So he's very much of a conceptual person. 
and then all of the work behind the art he outsources out to other people so like all the sunflower seeds he had a um tiny town outside of Beijing make all the porcelain because they were traditionally a porcelain making town so they were very wealthy before because porcelain was a huge trade and industry right and you needed people to make them by hand but as machines t have taken over their town essentially have gone into poverty because nobody needs them to go and make porcelain anymore um so he essentially outsourced this project to them and they spent like a couple of years making all the porcelain scenes for his exhibition um and he very much does this for all of his works. Um, he has other artists essentially come and execute and all he does is really think of the idea behind it and conceptualizes it, um, which I think is like a, which I think is like a twist on art. And I think it's an evolution is a step forward because as you see modern art and a lot of it is like more conceptual, right? And a lot of it's like more ideas based and kind of less about the form it kind of makes sense to me that it sort of takes on this kind of commercial role in which the artist is almost like the CEO of a company, right? And they lead and they see the idea, but the actual execution falls to other people. Um, which well, I think is, yeah. To me, this kind of sounds the way the animation works. Like somebody yeah. has the idea, then there's right. the writers, then there's the animators. Right. And there's also outsourcing to another company to do the animation. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think that's a very interesting step in art that I think previously was never seen because everybody always sees it more as like an individual mm -hmm. kind of activity mm -hmm. but I think this is this is um for lack of a better word interesting to see because you know now really anybody can be an artist regardless of whether or not you can execute on the form right like if you have an idea and something to say you can work with somebody to have it brought to the world but you don't have to be the one actually sculpting it or painting it or you yeah know, well, isn't that also kind of how, like, movies are made? Like, yeah. um, what's his name? Uh, Torrentino? Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what he says. So, like, I was watching an interview with him, and I'm like, dude, you're right. Like, they ask him something, and he's like, well, here's the way I direct. He's like, everybody wants to, like, do everything. They want to be the writer, the storyboard artist, the actor, the everything. He's like, I don't. <laughs> he was like, I'm just going to... If I want this badass scene to happen, I'm going to find the best writer to write it. And then after that, I'm going to find the best storyboard to storyboard it. And after that, I'm going to find the best actor to fit this role. That way it all just falls into place. And all I have to do is just put these people together and yeah. to create a product. I'm like, dude, you're right. <laughs> oh my, like that just, just changed my perspective on everything. Yeah, and it makes art making more commutative community mm -hmm. based right and it's yeah. not it's less about the individual but more the whole right the community yes. and the entity yes 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 yeah yeah and i think that's interesting and also for um ai weiwei he is not only like a sculptor exhibitionist type of artist but he has also made films and he's dabbled into a variety of mediums which i also think is kind of the step modern artists are taking, right? You express yourself not just through one medium, but actually through a variety of them. And, uh, and I, I think that is particularly interesting to see because you don't have to limit yourself to specifically one form to express those ideas, right? You can do it through a lot of different ways, um, which is why I always, I, I always found him to be a fascinating artist just because of the way he has done all of his different the way he has executed on his ideas, right? It's not limited to a form and it's not limited to just him making it. Um, anyway, I'm rambling now. Some of the other famous work he is known for. Um, so he, 
initially before the Sunflower Seeds, actually, he did a series called Dropping the Han Dynasty Urn, in which he um, went to antique flea markets and would purchase all of these like ancient pieces of Chinese uh, vase, or they, he would purchase all these ancient Chinese vases. Um, and then he made a photo series where he drops it onto the ground, right? And he made this at the time when Chinese uh, antique, at a time when Chinese antiques were rising in the West or their popularity mm -hmm. were rising in the West. And it has a lot of different meanings um, kind of hidden behind it. But I think the main one that will be kind of relevant to this conversation moving forward is that um, he was really doing it because the Chinese government when the Communist Party took over, they swept a lot of the cultural stuff under the rug because they're like, we're starting anew. So we're just gonna disregard everything that has happened in China culturally before. So they would just tear down stuff, um, historical stuff. They didn't keep any records. They destroyed actually a lot of records. Um, and then now as China, China is becoming more of a developed country and there's new buildings coming into place, they're starting to tear down like historical neighborhoods in order to build the new, right? And it's always, I think for a city, it's always a fine line behind, between like, what do you tear down in order to make new for the inhabitants versus what do you keep, right? It's always going to be a tough debate, but I think the Chinese government particularly has displaced people or has um, generally not taken care of or tried to keep any historical um, antiques in order to build. So the dropping the urn is kind of a demonstration of how the Chinese government is treating its history, right? They're essentially dropping the Han Dynasty urn, right? They're not treating anything with respect. Um, and then and then the other thing he is also well, really well known for is his bird nest um, is, is for, okay. And then the other thing he's really well known for is actually the 2008 Chinese uh, Olympic Stadium, the bird's nest, right? I'm sure everybody knows it when they look at Beijing. It's like that giant thing that looks like a bird's nest. Um, so he was actually the architect behind it. Yeah, so he's mm. not only um, like a conceptual artist, but he's also an architect. And I think he went to school for architecture as well. Um, he seems like a pretty big team player type of guy. Yeah, no, for sure. Like I think everything he does, you'll see has, is, is very community-based, not only in the execution of his work, but in what he is trying to demonstrate, right? So we'll get into more of that, but yes, very much of a community player, if you if you wanna say that. Um, and with, with the bird's nest, actually in 08, we'll talk about this later, but that was a huge issue because the Chinese government was essentially displacing all these people who lived in that area in order to build the new stadium. And the, they were not providing them with new housing, right? And I think this is, kind of a reoccurring story whenever the Olympics takes place in a developing country, the government is going to sweep away the people who live there and not provide any sort did, of... Did he like feel remorse for that then? Like... Yeah, so essentially okay. he, I think he provided the plans and when he found that, found out about that, he just dropped himself from the project and then he started tweeting about it vocally and started telling Western media that this was happening. Because Chinese me the Chinese government controls so much of the media, so not a lot of news necessarily gets out. Um, so he started tweeting it and talking to Western reporters about it. Um, yeah, so those are the things that he is most well known for. And I think the other reason why he became really well known was just the like the the level of 
the level of problems he and the Chinese government had. <laughs> so we can start talking about that as well. Um, and I think before we go, before we start talking about that, uh, when there was a reporter who asked him what kind of artist he is, Ai Weiwei said he was like a chess player and he's waiting for the opponent to make a move before he makes another one. And I think that's kind of, and I think that's very a very good description of a lot of the work he has done. I think as time has gone by, he has become more of a protest artist, right? And he has um, started to make more art in order to stand up against the Chinese government. And now he's doing more work to essentially advocate for people not only within China, um, and he considered himself a global citizen. So I think his work in the beginning was already sort of trying to represent the Chinese people, but as time has gone by, he has taken more of more of that role. And we'll see it as we go through um, this timeline shortly, so. Yeah. You know, so far I'm a fan. Yeah, yeah, I think he's a good dude. I think- um, Yeah, he seems like what every like white artist yeah. wants to be. Yeah. And he, he actually like, not only does he like talk the talk, he's like walking the walk. Yeah, I agree. I think the other thing I found that was very interesting was whenever he, before he does an exhibit, he'll take a lot of time to think about what he wants to say, and he'll try mm -hmm. to do a lot of research. So um, we can we can talk a little bit more about this later. But so some of the recent stuff he's been working on is regarding to with regards to the refugee crisis. So mm -hmm. he's been making documentaries talking about um, the Syrian refugees that have been flooding into Europe. And so, uh, so in articles in which people interview him, he has said that he'll take lots of time to research the issue before he makes an art or, or a documentary about it, because he wants to be sure he is representing everything correctly, which I think is very rare. Um, yeah, something that Banksy, take notes. Yeah, exactly. Right. And I think it makes his work a lot more well thought out versus something mm -hmm. where it's like, I don't really know what point you're trying to make you're trying to make a point but it's a little bit hard to follow the thread right so I think a lot of his work is a lot more direct and concise and you can really see what he's trying to say um so I wanted to say this like two three minutes ago <laughs> never too late when you mentioned that he's like a chess player waiting to make his move he's like a there's a lot of comparisons you can make he's like a mafia boss just <laughs> waiting for the right moment um, or like he's a mastermind. Yeah, no, I mean, I definitely think he's like a mafia, like a mafia boss or a mastermind, but maybe not in those negative contexts. Yeah. <laughs> but as benevolent, benevolent, he's a benevolent mafia boss. Yes, I think that's, yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. If you maybe want. that should be the title for this episode. A benevolent mafia boss. <laughs> okay, well, let's get into it because I think you'll, you'll see that it is actually a pretty apt description. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Nice. All right, so, um, so his issues with the Chinese government really started in 2008, um, not necessarily because of the bird's nest, but because of a massive earthquake that happened in the Sichuan province that year. Uh, but even before then, he had already kind of been in hot water with the Chinese government. So before then, in 2005, he was invited to blog on Sina Weibo, which is the largest sort of blogging platform in China um, that is still very much active today. And he would blog scathing remarks about the Chinese government and social conditions in China. 
and also his thoughts on art architecture in his life. So, you know, he, it was kind of his personal blog, right? He just wrote about what he thought and some of it had scathing comments about the Spilled the tea. Spilled the tea. <laughs> like, it's like my blog. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. He spilled the Back tea, but you know, he wasn't talking about high school drama. He was talking about drama with the Chinese government, you know? <laughs> yeah. Step up your game, Bartika. Yeah. Try harder next time <laughs> I make a blog, which maybe never. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and then his blog was shut down in 2009 by Weibo because of all the terrible things he said. Um, but all his posts were saved down and compiled into a book and translated. So if you want mm. to go back and read all of his blogs, you can. And there's, it's a pretty thick book i should just say whoa all right he had yeah, a lot of opinions he has a lot of opinions i think he blogged every day yeah. whoa yeah okay so, yeah he and should then, have like gone on youtube yeah i mean i think it was it was the early ages of youtube yeah in mm-hmm. 05 he should have been a vlogger yeah and been I a millionaire yeah kind of made it big <laughs> i mean you could still do it it's never too late all right um so, so yeah so his blog was shut down in 08 and 09 my bad but he also was in hot water with the chinese government because he was protesting the bird's nest so you know he was already kind of on the edge but um so what happens with this trunk earthquake kind of pushes it over the edge um and so if people are interested in learning more after we talk about this then i really recommend you guys watch ai Weiwei. Never Sorry. It's a documentary that was filmed actually during the period when mm-hmm. he was um, working on his Sichuan province work. Um, and you can see like things that have happened to him live in the documentary. Um, it's really good. I use that as a resource and, you know, you hear it from the mouth of the horse, you know. Uh, where can it be streamed? I think it's on YouTube. For free? Yeah. No, you can rent it on YouTube. That was such a hard no. 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 It's on um, Amazon Prime Video if you have a premium subscription, which I guess might be if you just have Amazon Prime in general. Yeah, yeah. It comes with Amazon Prime. I think you should be able to find a copy of it at your local library as well. I know there's one at our local library. If not, you can request to. Ah. Oh, yeah. Interlibrary loans. They exist. Mm -hmm. People utilize it exactly we're yeah. such a progressive podcast yeah you know advocating for libraries mm-hmm. and talking about a badass artist artist of the people as former library aids yeah. <laughs> we have to promote the library <laughs> we love the libraries okay yes Shout all right out so to our this is not sponsored high school librarians <laughs> not and i guess college too yeah. <laughs> all right anyway uh, yeah, so just to provide context regarding the Sichuan earthquake. So in 2008, there was a massive earthquake that happened in Sichuan province of China, which killed more than 80,000 people, with the majority of victims being children who were, um, who were actually attending school in poorly built government buildings. So a lot of the people who died in those 80,000 were these kids who were attending school. Um, and because the government had built those buildings and they hadn't followed proper protocol a lot of them collapsed and a lot of them died um but you know the government was very hush-hush about who these people were they were also very hush-hush about the quantity of people who passed away um and so Ai Weiwei 
as long as as well as a couple other people started to investigate into the students who died um, since in theory the government buildings should be strong enough to withstand the earthquake right like you expect that that would be built very sturdily especially if it's for children and you know they're the future of your country um, and so he started a citizen investigation team to find the names, ages, and schools of the children who died, and they posted their names on a blog to be remembered. And so this was, you know, like in their efforts to commemorate, to keep the government accountable, um, and to also kind of bring closure to the community, right? And I think this kind of ties back to, and I think this ties back to how he's very community-centered. So it was not just him who went out to do this. He employed members of his community, not only people from the Sichuan province, but also people from around China who saw this and were like, I don't think this is right. I think you should do something about it. And so they would fly and join him on his project to collect all of these names. Um, and then during this time, a lot of the members of his investigation team were arrested and their work would be confiscated by the police in the area. And you can actually see that happening in the documentary, like they filmed like moments in which the police would come up and be like what are you doing like no you got to get this so it'd be cool if there was like a part two of documentary like years after all this yeah i will see like uh, what would happen like what happened well we can get to it and also um, mm. i think you can find records of what happened to the blog as well so they compiled more than five thousand names and they posted all of them on the first anniversary of the earthquake and then the government very quickly shut down their blog. Um, and then very shortly after that, the government installed security cameras in front of Ai's home studio. You know, the government's got their eye on him now. Haha, <laughs> their eye. <laughs> um, but not, so one of, yeah, so one of the things Ai Weiwei did in, in his Sichuan investigation process was just to record all the names and then publish them. Um, but he also made a lot of other works around it and his most famous one is probably called remembering where he used 9,000 red blue and yellow backpacks to write out for seven years she lived happily on this earth in mandarin uh, which is actually what a mom had written about her daughter in mm. a public letter about the about the citron pro, uh, about the citron earthquake and he thought that phrase was extremely powerful and it really cuts into the crux of the matter which is all these kids who died you know they were extremely young you know and because of a government failure the government who was supposed to protect their people they didn't get to fully live right they only got to spend a short time on this earth so yeah so i made remembering which was those words and um made out of the red blue and yellow backpacks um, which is also significant because a lot of the pictures that came out after the earthquake were of just backpacks littering the rubble. Um, and you just like couldn't find kids, right? Like where the kids would be crushed in the building. Um, and so, you know, those are very poignant images. Um, that description reminds me of my um, favorite book as a child, um, Shin's Tricycle. I don't know if you guys read it, but uh, it was this kid who died and because of the Hiroshima and Nagasaki I forget which city he was he lived in but one of those um nuclear bombings and I don't know I went back and like reread the synopsis and I cried because I was like oh my gosh <laughs> this yeah. is my favorite book as a kid because like 
I mean, all that was left of him was his tricycle. Yeah, yeah. it's a. Uh... It's very dark, but it's true. Like, I think some of the most poignant images from war or any sort of disaster is just the leftover, like, toys or, mm-hmm. you know, school supplies, right? Because you just think about all those young lives that were lost because of really something out of their control. So, yes. I feel anyway. also, like, to add to, like, I guess kind of like the morbidity of it all is that there was an expectation of things to continue. Right, right. So having those things just little around, it's like, wow. Like, not only was something cut short, but the, like, I guess, like, innocence that was around that. Yeah. Or, or like, the expectation of things to continue. Right, right. Yeah. And then also everything was swept under the rug. So families couldn't get closure. You know, you just, mm-hmm. you couldn't talk about it, right? Because the government doesn't want you to say anything about their failure. So, yeah. Yeah. But um, yeah, so he, he created that exhibition using the backpacks. And it was actually on the front walls of the Haus der Kunst, which is a Munich historical building that was actually built for Hitler. So, you know, it's a double FU to the Chinese government and to the Nazis. <laughs> um, okay. And then on top of that, so during his investigation, I was actually trying to testify for Tan Zorin, who was also part of um, the investigation to find the names of the children. He was leading his own charge and he was um, a protester and um, an activist in China already on his own. Um, So they were kind of working separate spheres, but doing the same thing in Sichuan province. Um, And so he was, so I was trying to testify for him. And actually when he flew to, um, when he flew to the place where he needed to testify and he checked into his hotel um, in the middle of the night, the police like knocked on their hotel room and demanded to see their documentation and then dragged him out and essentially assaulted him. Um, and he had, so he had, um, yeah, and so he was, he was beaten by the police. And then later when he went back to Munich to finish his exhibition on remembering, he went to the hospital because he had a lot of headaches and eye pain, um, after, after the beating. So he went to the hospital and they found, oh, and he went to the hospital and they had to arrange for emergency brain surgery. Um, and the da- damage to your brain was believed to be linked with to the police beating. Um, so, you know, the government actively discouraging one activist. Uh, so the government is actively trying to discourage one activist to, from supporting another activist. And Tenzordan was actually sentenced to prison for his work around the investigation. Yeah, and actually, all of this is recorded in um, in the documentary because Ai Weiwei took a lot of videos and photos, and he was posting everything to Twitter as well. Um, so you know, he, so a lot of this is recorded footage, so you can see actually what happens. And he's like very aware, and he's you know he knows that he needs to record stuff in order to be taken seriously, right? You need evidence, and you need proof. And then after that, actually he would go back to the city where he stayed in the hotel where the police beat him. And he would go back year after year to try to push it up the justice system. 
and make a file and claim and say, hey, you guys beat me and you caused this, this brain damage and I want justice for it. Um, and he, he like never got very far, but he would go every year and film himself going every year and film the process because he's like, in order for people to like know, like I can't, I can't bring justice to myself, right? I have to work in the systems that the government says are supposed to work and expose them for how they're not working, which I'm like, you know what? I admire it because I feel like a lot of times when we read like literature and it's people revolting against the government, they never try to expose how broken the system is. You know, they just go like, the system is broken. We're gonna like fight against it. But he's like, I need to show people that it is broken before we can enact real change, right? Like people need to see and understand that, so. Well, I think it goes into his being, him being like compared to a chess player because he's already thinking steps ahead. He's all like, I yeah. can't, cause it'll always be his word against the government's words. Yeah. So he's yeah. like, let me have undeniable proof. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So I think, with what you were saying, how most people go and be like, oh, the system's broken. I think with that, that there's an expectation of I, I, I will be believed because I'm the one who is saying the truth versus him being more realistic and going, I know I'm going to be beat. So let me play things at their own game. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah. And that's exactly what he's doing. You know, like he's he knows that's that's what's happening and he's aware of his situation and he's you're playing them at their own game. And that's the only mm-hmm. way you can do it, right? You have to play them at your, their own game. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So that was the Sichuan earthquake issue. So that was part one of his tango with the Chinese government. Part two, um, so the government already doesn't like him. But, you know, he's well known, right? Because you less- make it seem like the popular kid doesn't like him. No. Okay. Yeah, the popular kid does not like him. You know, like he's in hot water. Brittany is not going to invite Ai Weiwei to her party, you know? <laughs> okay. Anyway, um, the other part of the Sichuan earthquake investigation, and so the Chinese government actually also investigated Ai's bank accounts, um, and the state security agents claimed he was being investigated for unsuspect, unspe, unspe, sorry, for unspecified suspected crimes. Mafia boss, I'm telling you, but <laughs> no, no. <laughs> he should have gotten like a bank account overseas. Yeah, then it would have been real mafia boss stuff. That would have been, uh, yeah, yeah. But I mean, I think in this situation, the Chinese government is much more like the mafia boss, and he's oh, like, for real, yeah. for sure. <laughs> he's like the shaken. Oh, no, they're gonna come after us. We can't say that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So the next thing that happens is a Shanghai studio controversy. So essentially, mm. I was invited along with several artists to build a studio in Shanghai and teach architecture as an effort to develop the art center in the city. Um, and I know you guys are thinking like, well, the government doesn't like him. So why did they invite him to do this? Um, but I mean, he's like very well known now in the Western world. And, you know, China will always face to some degree Western pressure, right? You can't just, you can't make people disappear and if the West starts frowning upon them, you know, it's going to bring some issues as well. To As much as they want to play their own game and be like, you can't control me, there's a little bit of like, you know, the West still, they still need the West to support them in many ways. So, so if he wasn't well known, they could just make him disappear like that? Oh, yeah, no, no one would know. So You yeah. say that, so like, 
Call like I know out. something. Yeah, like no one would. I was like, oh, what's are you? the tea, Manti? <laughs> I mean, do I'm, you know something? Okay. Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty sure it's like, pretty sure thousands of Chinese people just disappear and nobody knows what happens to them, and it's probably because the government got to them. Anyway, this this is actually conspiracy talk that is going to get us shut down. Everything else has been factual. <laughs> oh, whoa, whoa! This is all speculation. I have no the idea. drama and art drama llama. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. okay. So, um, so he was invited to build a studio in Shanghai, and then all of a sudden he was banned from building his studio. And the government was saying he was banned because he didn't have the proper docu- documentation to erect the building, even though Ai Weiwei was told by the authorities that they would take care of everything. Um, and then after he was starting to ask around, and it seemed like it was because of two documentaries he made that year about two dissenters. So essentially he did something the government didn't like and the government took away something that, like a a project of his, right? Um, And then he was about to hold a farewell party for his building, um, but he was held under house arrest. So he was not allowed to go to the farewell party, Um, but his supporters still showed up with river crabs which is a Chinese word that sounds similar to harmony. Um, and it's actually been now being used by critics as a euphemism against the government. So I think this is also relating a little bit back to his the earlier point of a lot of the things he does is very community-based, right? Like he wanted to get people involved in the Sichuan investigation. When his building was gonna get torn down, he wanted people to come out and say goodbye to it um, because in his, like, he has talked about this, you know, you need to motivate the people to take action, right? He can't be the only one standing against the Chinese government. You need to inspire that and everybody else. So he tries to do as many things that can bring the community in and bring people to participate. So you have strength in numbers, but also you kind of spread the revolt, I would say, <laughs> for lack of better words. Um, and then all of a sudden, his studio was torn down one night when I was in Beijing. Um, and then a, for, a few short months after his studio was por- torn down, I, along with a lot of human rights activists, lawyers, bloggers, and writers were arrested. Um, and it seemed like the reason they were being arrested was because the Chinese government was scared that they were going to launch a Jasmine revolution, which is the term that was being used at the time for the revolutions happening in the Middle East and North Africa. Um, and so I had tweeted something about like, you know, the Jasmine revolutions don't sound that bad, right? Because Jasmine is a flower. And then, you know, so a lot of other Chinese bloggers, bloggers, activists, human rights lawyers and things like that have expressed similar things. The Chinese government got scared after seeing the, nas- the international sort of revolutions that were happening and arrested all of these individuals. Um, and he was taken away, taken hostage, like, he just like disappeared. People didn't know where he went. Um, and essentially he was well known pub- like on the world surf. Uh, he was well known in the entire world at this point that lots of people in different countries started petitions for the government to release him. Um, and so he was released after three months in detention under the charges of tax evasion. And he was forbidden from traveling for a year. Um, and when he came back, it seemed like he was suffering from some injuries, even though he was like, everything was fine. There were like 
actual physical injuries on him. So we don't really know what happened, but shit went down. Yeah. Um, and then in 2012, when his year from traveling was up, the government officials informed him that he wasn't able to visit other countries because of his previous history with pornography. Um, and some of his previous work like did feature him naked and him and his wife naked, or he like held the Chinese urn in front of his nether regions. Um, so that was what they were referencing to when they talked about pornography. <laughs> um, uh, real quick. Yeah. So like, is there anywhere that said like what, like his, like if his family facing their repercussions or was it just, was everything solely focused on him? Yeah, that's actually, um, yeah, it seemed like everything was mostly focused on him. There hasn't been lots of reports about things that have happened to his wife or his mom or his brother. Mm -hmm. um, it has mostly just been him. Um, but, you know, like, like when, so this is something I didn't mention at the beginning, but Ai Weiwei's father was actually a very well-known Chinese poet. And during the Cultural Revolution, during the um, during the Cultural Revolution, when essentially the government was essentially beating people on in the streets for being educated or for being landlords, essentially for being people of wealth, either in education or in actual wealth, his father was part of that. Despite his father having been like a huge fan of the Communist Party, right? Because the Communist Party promised a lot of like equality, right? And his dad was a fan of that. But because he was a poet, he was suffering from all these consequences uh, during the Cultural Revolution. And then his family is what was actually sent to the Xinjiang province, um, which is where there's a lot of uprising now. Um, but his family was sent to the uh, Xinjiang province where they were forced to do manual, where they were forced to do manual work as a way to essentially like re-educate them is what they said. Um, so he actually grew up there with his father and his family doing manual labor in Xinjiang province. Yeah, so that is all to say like, they have not taken any proactive steps against his family, um, but I, I, I'm sure that there might be stuff that just doesn't get reported. It also seems that they have a history of facing repercussion. So at the same time, I get the feeling that they're not scared. Yeah, they're, yeah, you would say that. I think he's not scared because he's like, this is what I need to do, right? Mm -hmm. Like I need to do this and it doesn't really matter what happens to me. It just needs to, somebody needs to stand up and say something. Mm -hmm. um, but in the documentary, like his mom, when his mom comes to visit him after his head, -ish, his head wound, um, she, you know, she was crying. She was like, mm. not safe. And, you know, she's never going to feel happy about that, right? Like, she's always going to be worried that something is going to happen. And it's her, it's her son. So, yeah. Yeah. He doesn't have any kids, though, right? He does. Um, he had a kid outside of his marriage. Oh, saucy. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it seems like him and his wife are still strong. So I don't really know what's going on there, and I didn't really want to look into it too much. Um, okay. But that right, definitely right. happened, yeah. Okay, maybe not as woke as we thought. I mean, maybe but too he's only woke. human? Yeah. Maybe. He's only human? Okay. 
it's actually it, it's actually mentioned in the documentary as well you can see his son and his ah! his baby mama, his baby mama. yeah okay. <laughs> oh. okay but back to back to the timeline um yes so that was 2012 when he was told he couldn't travel because of his history with pornography and then from 2012 onwards it kind of dies down i also relocated outside of china so he is more he's been living in like england germany and now he's in portugal um working on other stuff um and um but i mean the main stuff that has happened after 2012 is mostly the chinese government removing him from a lot of chinese museums list about like modern chinese artists so like the big museums in like shanghai or beijing they don't list him anywhere as a chinese artist like they have just removed his name from everywhere in china essentially um and don't recognize him anymore and today he's working a lot regarding the refugee crisis which we talked about in the beginning but he also made a documentary over covid19 where he actually flew um to where COVID started in order to capture footage of what was happening um and to also capture footage of the nurses and doctors that were working in the initial days of COVID and then he also made um, a documentary about the Hong Kong protests so he's been working on lots of stuff making more documentaries recently um and really trying to address a lot of the issues he sees in the world um but in more of a video format. So he has somewhat become a video blogger. <laughs> okay, it all circles back. It all circles back. He seems very, aside from like a team player and kind of like director, he also seems very kind of like a historian. Like he he's like, I have to record, I have to yeah, yeah. like document. Yeah, and I think that's, um, so he mentioned, he actually came to the US for college um, and he actually was a huge fan of Duchamp and Warhol, which is why some of his early works were with ready-made uh, props, right? So um, his like Han Dynasty urns, um, those were all ready-made objects and he did a lot of stuff with them um, because he was inspired by Marcel and Duchamp. But also during this time is when he kind of grew his activism, like he saw the Iran-Contra. Wait, you mean Warhol and Duchamp? <laughs> you said Marcel and Duchamp. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. He was very much inspired by Duchamp and Warhol um, when he was... <laughs> no, Marcel and Duchamp. They're the same person. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, so he... I mean, I think he gained a lot of inspiration when he was here in the U.S. Um, like, he saw the Iran-Contra hearings where the government put itself on trial, really, for the stuff that happened in Iran. Um and he was like, I can't believe this is happening. Like, you can do that. Like, a government can just point out its own mistakes. Um, yeah, and then so he, so he took a lot of inspiration from the U.S. And then when he went back to China, he was walking through antique flea markets. And he was like, why do I not know about this stuff? Like, how come I don't understand the history behind this urn or this vase? Like, I don't know what any of these items represent and what they mean to me in terms of history. So I think he also realized that, you know, he just wasn't learning things from the education system, right? Like his, the Chinese government wasn't teaching him an adequate history of himself. So I think that also inspired him to take more. It's interesting that you say that because I see that a lot with people who are like, 
moved from like one country to another and mm -hmm. like raised there or like are like second third generations they have kind of like this identity slash cultural crisis yeah, yeah i think that speaks volumes to like he is a citizen of a specific country and grew up in that country and yet because of like things outside of him and political and government things he feels like an outsider in his own like home essentially yeah yeah exactly yeah and i think i think that's a really good way to put it you know and i think he's definitely strived he's definitely strived strove mm -hmm. is striding is striding. yes he's definitely he's striding. Okay. yeah he's definitely striding to to build like a more aware Chinese identity, right? Because I think his view is that everybody is just very focused on the future and very wanting to become commercialized, you know? And if you do that, then you lose all of your history. But also I think to some degree, you accept your reality for what it is. And you think that the way you're living now is great, but really is it great that you can't file a police claim that somebody wrongs you is it really great that the government is sweeping away those in poverty in order to build new stuff like are all of these things that we should accept as our reality or should we be more critical and i think you can only be critical if you have a solid understanding of where you've come from and also things to look back on to like compare yeah. and contrast yeah exactly exactly yeah, so that's Ai Weiwei. I think he, you know, the drama I think comes from him and the Chinese government. It's kind of spicy. You know, I think- um, Wait, 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 is this it? Yeah, this is it. What? You left it of like, such a like, like a midpoint. Yeah, I mean- I guess because so, he's still alive and like- He's still, yeah, he's still alive. It's still evolving. But, um, but I mean, after he left China, he's poked the bear a little bit less you know <laughs> he hasn't done as much yeah um and i think he is starting to so the thing he has recently said is he is starting to realize that a lot of issues are interconnected right like um like the refugee crisis is going to cause ripple effects everywhere and china is also involved in the middle east and causing the refugee crisis to occur to begin with um, and now China is also expanding its reach into Latin America and Africa, more of Africa. And so, so he's, I think, now seeing it's more of a global issue. And I think so now he's focused his attention on more global. Well, not that I think I know he has said that he's focusing his attention on more global issues because he sees how one country can cause global effects, right? So nothing is limited to one country's border. Um, and so he is poking China a little bit less, but you know. Is that where his uh, thoughts on being a global citizen come from? Yeah, yeah, like, that's exactly where, yeah. Yeah, and, and I think as he's gone to travel a little bit more outside of China, he's come to realize there are just problems everywhere, right, so. Dude, yes. <laughs> that's what that's what i realized when this whole covid thing started i was like yeah. i need to leave america i was like where can i go and the more i looked into countries i'm like everywhere sucks but yeah. they're just a different flavor of suck yeah yeah and it's i think you know i think some countries are a little bit harder to live in the others 
Um, but you're right, everybody is going to have their own problems and it's we're never going to be able to find a utopia, right? Because we have so many people who have so many different opinions and ideas about how life should be lived. So you can't really have a world where you think, you know, like if I think if you had a world where it seems everything is great and perfect, that's just because everybody who is there has the exact same idea on how life is lived. <laughs> well, what is now like yeah so mostly he's been working on um the refugee crisis that has been his main focus recently but like just in the past year or so he's made documentaries about the hong kong protests and also um covid19 and it started in wuhan so is there anywhere like where you can look at and see how like chinese citizens think of him like i no i I think he's or the people. I honestly, I think he's kind of stepped out of the of the lens of the China lens. Um, the public eye. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't say he stepped out of the public eye. I think he's still trying to make his mark. But I. So he's just not like in their like consciousness at the moment. Yeah, I think so, and I think that's a little bit sad because I think of the people who are trying to protest or just bring awareness to these issues. I think he's doing a great job of it, right? Mm-hmm. But he's just not, I think, as as famous and prominent as he used to be. Yeah, and I think it's mostly because he's not making provocative art, right? Like the documentaries aren't provocative anymore. Like initially, him dropping antiques is like, if you were to pick up I don't know, like a bus of George Washington, like the only bus of George Washington and dropping it, right? Like that's kind of the degree I would think that's what it is too. The other like pretty provocative art he made, he um, like him raising a middle finger to all of these famous uh, landmarks. And so like there was one where he raised his middle finger to the Tiananmen Square and then to the Eiffel Tower and stuff. Um, you know, like it's all very provocative, but over time he has made less provocative stuff. Hmm. It seems like his anger turned into compassion. Yeah, I think he's gone more jaded over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I mean I think as you get older, a lot of the passion, the fiery anger. Oh, I wouldn't say like the passion goes away. I feel like it just becomes. It takes a different form. Yeah, I feel like it becomes that reactionary. Like yeah. when you're young like okay you yell you this you scream you all that and then when you're older you're like no let me build let me like guide let me be more constructive instead of destructive right yeah i think you're right like the passion is there it's just you're not loud anymore yeah yeah i think that's true yeah really okay go ahead no this is totally unrelated (laughs) uh is i his first name or his last name because i know chinese people do it backwards yeah so i is his last name and weiwei is his first name yeah but good question good question that was totally unrelated but i've been wondering (laughs) no you're good i mean it's 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 yeah i feel like it's good that you asked because i thought i was his first name yeah no he's a it's his last name so but yeah um i just want to talk about him I thought he's a good contrast to Banksy, but I also thought, you know, it's good to have some non-Western 
discussions. Um, and also, yeah, yeah. And then um, I also think that he's an interesting character, like the way he thinks about things, I think is a little bit, like you said, it's he was a provocative artist and now he's channeled his passion into something that is more compassionate or, you know, less provocative, mm -hmm. um, more trying to be factual. And I think that's an interesting transition and I think something, you know, that is needed, right? Like you can't make provocative art and make people think, but I also think it's important that you have documentaries where you're talking about the issue and trying to find ways to solve it instead of just raising the middle finger to the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. I feel it's also like uh, different from your usual topics of interest. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so too. Um, I think I just wanted to shed some light on Ai Weiwei because I feel like a lot of people don't know about him. I feel like he's he's always brought up, but yeah. never people don't fully know discussed. Who, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I do remember him talking about the sesame seed yeah. installation at towards the end of our art history uh, class in high school. Yeah, and for the contemporary unit. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I think, think you did you cover it? I might have, but I, I think people, I think you make a good point that we only really see him through the lens of certain large things he's done, but he is a much more holistic, comprehensive artist than that. And we actually yeah. have information about all of his sides, right? Yeah, and, all the sides. Mm -hmm. and, and it's like you said, coming from like the horse directly from the horse's mouth, like. Yeah. Not only is it documentation of like outside of him, it's him himself doing it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And that's like pretty rare, in my opinion, mm -hmm. for even some modern artists, you know, like yeah. not everybody keeps record of what they think. So mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit more about him and hopefully people enjoy the episode and check him out. Honestly, I kind of want to look into him more. Yeah, he's done a ton of stuff. Like, he's a very prolific artist. I only scratched the surface of the work he's done. Like, he's talked about incarceration. Um, he's talked about environmental issues. Like, you know, he's he's talked a lot about different topics. I just kind of cherry-picked. Did he... That was a little bit larger. Did he kind of start this at an older age? Um. So, I think he was always... I think he was always an activist. So... When he went back to China after college, he started mm. to realize there wasn't an art scene. So he, they started to publish like underground magazines discussing Western art, also showing his their own art and creating their own kind of underground exhibits, uh, even when he was young. Um, I just don't think he really catapulted into fame until a little bit later in his life, but he was always very into Pretty, okay. Yeah, very okay, outspoken. Okay. And I think it also is due to his family, right? Like his dad was an outspoken poet, so. Is his family still in China? Yes, his father passed away when he was in college, I want to say. Um, and then his mom and his brother should, are still alive. Hmm. And in China, so. So are him and his wife the only ones uh, outside of China? Yeah, and I believe they took their the son with them as well not the baby mama okay now i'm done yeah <laughs> listen we don't know the full situation there so i'm not gonna speculate okay all right well i will 
wrap up now because <laughs> I way way. Okay. Is that our thing? That is so I way way. That is so, so raising a middle finger to the motherland. I'm gonna go with that. Plays communist music in the background. Yeah. <laughs> if you have any stories that you would like us to cover, please email us at artdramalama at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Patreon. And our handles for all of those are at artdramalama. And lastly, thank you for joining us. And we hope we can continue looking beyond the galleries with y'all next time. Bye, llamas. Peace. Bye.